Welcome to this podcast. This is going to be about the life and times of Tim Heal. In this series of podcasts, I'm going to take you through my life from birth to retirement. I will be covering some of the major events in my life and some of the successes and failures that I've had during my lifetime. So sit back, strap yourself in, it's going to be a bit of a bumpy ride. Welcome to episode 7 of the life and times of Tim Hill. In this episode, I'm going to take you from when I've just left the army and transferred across to the Special Air Service and how my selection went and also how I struggled at adapting to civilian life. So sit back and enjoy. During the almost two years that I'd spent at Sennybridge, I saw quite a lot of SAS guys come through there on training, etc. I even bumped into the uh, the famous Andy McNabb when he was doing his beat-up training before going for selection. So I had a rough idea of what to expect. Anyway, it was Saturday the 16th of March 1985. I was on terminal leave. I still had a couple of weeks to go before finally being discharged on the 4th of April 1985. But I had the call to go up to the Duke of York headquarters in Chelsea, London. It's just off Sloan Square. On this particular day, I turned up there and there was about about 100 other blokes, I guess, and we were herded into this big um, hall uh, that had a stage at one end. And when we were all in there, we were sort of fairly quiet, some people were chatting and whatnot. And then this RSM came in. It was only a small bloke, little jock. He said, right, lads, listen in. Right, all of you that smoke, put your hands up. A few of them put their hands up. All the yous that don't take sugar, put your hands up. The best advice I can give to you boys is those that smoke, give up. Those that don't take sugar, start. Well, that was it. That was my introduction to the SAS. After that, it was a, a sort of a round of seeing the doctors and signing forms and bits and pieces. And then we had to go out and do a bit of a run. And they had a 400 metre track. And they said, right, you need to go around this 12 times in under 10 and a half minutes. If you can't make that, then you've got no chance of continuing the course. So off we set. I've run round. I've come round. I've done my 12 laps. I've said, staff, 12. He said, go on, keep going. Anyway, I ended up doing about 15 laps, but still in under the 10 and a half minutes. So I was fairly safe. So at the end of that day, they called us in one at a time and said, Yes or no? And they said, yes, you're going to go to C Squadron at Hitchin. Report there on Wednesday night to start your training. So I turns up to Hitchin on the Wednesday night, not quite knowing what to expect. I guess there's about another 30 or 40 guys there ready to start training. They told us to bring along our PT kit. So the first thing we did was get into our PT kit. And then split us in half. Half of us went into the into a classroom and we were doing some map reading, some very basic low-level stuff, but it's one of the key key disciplines in the SAS. And the other half went into the gym and then we swapped over at half-time. Second half, I went into the gym and they were doing circuit training, SAS style. Three quarters of the way through it, 
there was quite a lot of us all outside chucking their guts up. They do know how to make you sick. So at the end of the evening, they said, right, lads, be here at, uh, at, for six o'clock on Friday evening, and we're off on our first weekend to Wales. And that was it. Got there on the Friday. There was a coach waiting for us. The coach left. We drove up onto the M4, and we stopped at Lee Delamere Services, and we waited for another coach, or another two coaches. One coach was already there, and the other coach we was waiting for, they were coming up from London. One from A Squadron and one from uh, B Squadron, I think it was, at Dulwich. It was quite late when the coaches dropped us off at Pontralis and we were told to all get in this big lean-to and get our kit sorted out and to get our heads down for a few hours. And that was it. Start of SAS selection training. The following morning we were up fairly early, washed, shaved and get, got ready. We were dressed in boots, denims and a PT shirt. And then we were off on a run. So we did, I don't know, five or six miles just around the camp, just as a warm-up, they said. And then we went off to do some map reading in groups. That first weekend was, was fairly relaxed, although pace was quite quite fast. And they showed us pretty much what they expected over the coming weeks. I got home on the Sunday night from that weekend, absolutely exhausted. Although it didn't seem a lot at the time, it would, they'd pack an awful lot in to two days. So my pattern of life was, I'd train Monday and Tuesday, I'd go out running, and then I'd go off to the gym. Wednesday nights was the drill night over at Hitchin. I'd train on a Thursday night, and then Friday night, it was going off to the mountains with the SAS. But that was only every other weekend. On the weekends that I wasn't going off with the SAS, I would probably go off and do something on my own just to keep my level of fitness up. And I do stuff over the weekend as well. Go for a long run, go for a long long hike up a hill. And that was a pattern of life for several months. So the first job I had when I left the army properly, I got a job working for a courier service as a motorbike courier, mainly running bits and pieces down into London most of the time, which did afford me quite a lot of time off. And I could come and go as I pleased really. But the money was pretty crap. I've been in the SAS for about six months and we were coming up to the big tests, getting ready, and we were on a, a long march over the weekend. I was about 19 hours in or so and I was coming down a, a fairly steep steep hill and all of a sudden my foot went down into a rabbit hole. My foot stayed where it was and my rest of my body twisted round it. Not only did I severely damaged my knee but also put my back out at the same time and pretty much that ended my SAS career. I was gutted, absolutely gutted. So on my discharge paper from the SAS it said I'd done one year and 53 days. By the time I'd recovered life had moved on and I had to get a proper job. I'd had enough of being mucked about by the courier firm so I managed to get a job an agency, a driving agency, uh, Manpower, and they sent me to work driving trucks. So I hadn't been able to get a job, a proper job driving trucks because I hadn't got experience. And you can't get experience unless you've got a job. It's a catch-22. Anyway, they sent me to work, most of the time a four weeks work out of them, and my driving career kicked off. I quite enjoyed working for Manpower most of the time. 
the work was certainly varied and I was gaining a huge amount of experience on different trucks in different companies. One week I'd be on a cement mixer lorry, the next week I'd be on a fridge lorry with a, on an Arctic, the next week I'd be driving around newspapers on a flatbed. And so it went on. I was just gaining experience all the time. I'd been working for Manpower for around about, I guess it's a year or so, and I'd been into most companies that they dealt with. The only one I hadn't been into was the big Tesco's warehouse up on Kiln Farm in Milton Keynes. So finally I got the opportunity to go in there. It's a funny old place back then. They had their own drivers, and their own drivers were on, I don't know, uh, about £25,000 a year. And the agency drivers in there were on pretty good money at £10 an hour. But they treat the agency drivers like they've come in like a piece of shit on the bottom of the shoe. Just, they, they, they were horrible to us. Anyway, it came to a head. I'd been in there for, for several weeks. And this particular day, they gave me the Isle of Wight, the Tesco's there. So I knew I had to go down to Southampton, get on a red funnel, drive across, drive to the store, tip out, put the empties back on, have my brake, drive back to the ferry, and then drive back up to Milton Keynes. Now, they have a stickler for sticking to speed limits and, and the rules and everything like that. So I sat at 40 miles an hour all the way down the A34, almost put me to sleep, and all the way back. And I got back into the yard. I'd done probably around about 10 and three quarter hours. And I thought I was taking liberties because I'd had two stops on the way down and two stops on the way back. Anyway, they called me into the office, put my papers in. He said, can I have a look at your taco driver? I said, yeah. So I gave him a disc, a couple of these um, manager types, inspecting my disc, looking at it. Okay, no problem at all. Thanks, driver. Um, you're back in tomorrow. You're on whatever load it was. Anyway, I came back in the following morning and half a dozen of their drivers ganged up on me and got me into the the changing rooms. And they said, you've lost one of our best jobs. You should have taken a night out. I said, whoa, whoa, stop right there. I said, nobody told me I had to take a night out. I said, you guys don't even talk to us. You don't even acknowledge that we exist. So how am I supposed to know I should have taken a night out on a little run like the Isle of Wight? Anyway, after that, they was a little bit more civil to us. And they say, oh, what you got, driver? Where are you going today? Oh, oh, blimey. You only want to take about 10 hours on that. Or, cool, that's a night out if you're not careful. <laughs> so, yeah, we kind of built up a bit of a relationship with them. And that's how it ended within Tesco's. That's how they came to treat us a little bit better than they had done. But they still lost their night out on the Isle of Wight. I'd gone into Iceland this particular day and they gave me Oxford. The Oxford store had been there before and it was a difficult yard. It's a small yard, but it slopes down and you've only got a 30 foot trailer and it's all stacked up with frozen meats. Each pallet weighs around about a ton and they always give you a boy to give you a hand. And the boy comes out and he's in a, a Michelin man suit. So this lad's up on the truck with us and give us a hand, push these pallets to the back and you put them onto your, to your tail lift and they go down. Anyway, I said to this lad, if a pallet starts getting away from us, let me pull the handle. Fine. All was going well. We, we'd done about three quarters of the load and we had a big pallet of meat, about a tons worth. 
As we're coming down, the pallet's starting to get away from us. And he'd got on the side with the lever. I said, pull the lever, pull the lever. Let go, let go. He didn't let go, I did. The pallet's gone shooting over the back of the trailer and it's catapulted him up the yard. He's got about 30-odd metres with his arms and his legs flailing in the air and he's bounced up the yard like a, a, a stone on water. It's quite amusing at the time. Because he had such a big padded suit on, he hadn't done himself any damage. But there was meat everywhere. Old pallet, a ton of meat all over the yard. Took ages to clear up. I'd had enough of working for other people. So I decided around about 1987 that I'd set up on my own. I managed to buy a van and I called myself Hill Transport Services. And I managed to get a few little contracts. I still had a contact in at Mortimer's who were doing part works. And it was taking out periodicals basically. So I got in there. I got into another firm over in Aylesbury doing a job once a week delivering out specialist breads. Pumpernickels and that sort of thing around London. I had a, another contract with a company called Polar Express where I used to drive down to Harwich on a Sunday morning, pick up a load of documents off of the ship that come in with loose trailers and deliver them back to Milton Keynes for them to process, ready for the trailers to be released. This lasted about a year. I was just about scraping a living, but I wasn't doing particularly well at it. I was barely covering my costs, so I decided to fold the company and I went and got a job as a transport manager for Steetly Transport over at Woburn Sands. And I had just opened up a depot down at Thurrock. I used to go down to Thurrock on a Monday morning. They put us up in a hotel and I'd work there all week and come home on a Friday afternoon. The money was quite good. Anyway, I'd had enough of that after a while and I got a job with, with Roger Stringer over in Amptill, he had a small fleet of trucks doing lots of different work. He had some beer work out of Iselworth and he had some international work with Samson Transport. And I started with him as a transport manager. I'd been working for Stringer for a few months and it came to one weekend. One of the trailers had to be in Copenhagen for the Monday morning and a driver couldn't do it. So Roger asked me if I could do it. So I left on the Friday afternoon and I drove down to Harwich, got on a ferry, drove up to Copenhagen, done the job, got there for Monday morning, tipped out, reloaded, came back and that was it. I ended up back as a driver and I spent the next three years working for Roger doing lots and lots of international work for Samson. The work for Samson was really varied and we went all over Europe Used to do an awful lot of Spain, a lot of Portugal, quite a bit of Italy, a bit of Germany. But one of the best jobs that we had, we had Sweden. It was a 10 day turnaround and it was a lovely little job, dead easy. Money was really good. Used to make a little bit of extra on um, selling some booze up there. It was up in Gothenburg, that one of the places we used to go on a regular basis. I was talking to a guy in a warehouse and his brother-in-law worked for a guy up in Moss in Norway, and he was looking for English drivers that would get on and do the work. Gave me the number, I spoke to him, and he said, yes, come over. So I started there on the January of 1990. 
NHG Trans had a fleet of uh, about eight or nine wagon and drags and the bulk of their work was line trucks going from Oslo to Paris. They also had a couple of other little contracts. One used to go down to Marseille and Toulon and then reloading back in Avignon, back into Oslo. Most of the time I was on one of the line trucks. So we'd drive from Oslo down to, to Moss, get on the Moss ferry across to Fredrikshavn. We arrive in Fredrikshavn in the morning, drive down to Sabi, put the truck in for a wash and a, uh, and a grease up while we had a breakfast. And then it was almost drive non-stop down to Paris. Get into Paris, get to the firm we was delivering to. We dropped the trailer on one bay, put the truck on the bay next to it, put the papers in. We go and get our heads down for about 10 hours. They come and knock you up when the load was ready to go. So you'd have had about 11 hours off. And that was it. You drive almost non-stop then back to Oslo. And this is how it went on. On a good week, you could do two Parises, which was a real lick. But we normally just did a one and a half a week. We used to earn around about either a thousand or two thousand pound a week, depending on if you got two trips in, it would be two grand. If it was the one trip, it would be a grand. I had a few memorable trips with him. I loaded once in Paris for Narvik and I took the whole load up myself. And I did it twice. I did it once in the summer and I did it once in the winter. The winter was a lot easier than the summer, believe it or not, because there were so fewer camping cars on the road. But driving up there on almost frozen snow with snow tyres on was a piece of cake. Another memorable trip that I did was I was on the Marseille, Toulon, Avignon. I'd loaded up in Avignon on the Friday afternoon I only had 70 pallets. We normally get 72 euro pallets on. But this particular time, they had only stuck 70 on because they hadn't finished the, the, the load. And this load had to be in Oslo for early hours on the Monday morning. So getting your papers at 6 o'clock on a Friday night in Avignon, it meant a real tight schedule to get out of Germany Saturday night and into Denmark to be able to get to to Oslo for Monday morning. Anyway, I rang him up and said, I'm loaded up and I've only got 70 pallets on. Oh, can you go via Riddikirk? I said, you're having a laugh. Riddikirk is in Holland and it's it's about 15 hours drive from where I was. I said, I can't do it. He said, you must try. All right, I'll give it a try. What about if I get captured? Will you pay the fine? Yes, yes, I pay the fine. Anyway, I've driven up overnight and I'm driving in towards Riddikirk and I got captured by the uh, the police and the ministry in Holland on the Saturday morning. Anyway, they checked my papers out, one thing or another. And he's just about to walk away. Ah, disc, he says. I said, you don't want to see that? He said, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> he said, disc. So I give him a disc. He looked at it. And I only had one brake on it. And that was in Luxembourg just to fill up with diesel. He said, You've driven all of this? I said, yes. He said, uh, you must park. Uh, and also, you must pay. Anyway, he parked me up for eight hours, charged me 6,000 guilders, which I put on his DKV card, and that was it. I rang him up and said, they've parked me up for eight hours. I've been captured. 
No, yes. Anyway, 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday night, I got round to the yard in Riddicoke in Holland. They stuck this lump on the back. It was about a six-ton lump of machine on the on the back of the hangar, which made it really unwieldy to drive. And I set off, and I got to Dana Camp, where we used to go through the border from Holland into Germany. And I'm just sneaking through there about two o'clock in the morning. And this cop has jumped out with his lollipop and he says, Stop, where do you think you're going? Oh, I'm just going to go out and park up over there. He says, No, you're not. Turn round. You come back in tomorrow night. So anyway, I went and parked up. I rung him up at three o'clock in the morning. I said, I've been captured again. No. I said, Yes. I said, That's it. I'm stuck in Holland down until tomorrow night. No. I said, Yes. So anyway, time I got away on the early hours of Monday morning, time I've got into Oslo, it's Tuesday. I pulled into the factory after he's taken this lump off the back of the truck and they said, oh, he said that you're broken down. I said, no, he made me go via Holland to pick up this lump. Oh, did he? Well, it nearly cost us the, uh, the contract, but we just about managed to keep it. I'd been working for Garnos for about 18 months or so. And because I smoked at that time, and I was drinking filter coffee, I had a filter coffee making machine in the truck, and I was drinking around about two or three litres of that a day, and I was smoking, I don't know, between 60 and 80 fags a day. Almost killed me. Anyway, I came back on leave for a time, and I decided that's it. I'm not going back, and I'm going to give up smoking. So that was it. I gave up smoking and I haven't had a fag since. And I went back and I got a job with Manpower again. And they sent me to work driving for different people and one thing and another. And after a short time, they put me into contracts where they'd had trouble. So I was used as a troubleshooter to calm customers down. So we kept the contract. Because I'd been in the military, Manpower knew this. They had a contract coming up with the foreign office out at Hanslope Park, of which you needed security clearance. So we got the forms done up. My clearance came through fairly quickly in comparison. It normally takes about six months, but mine was through in about three or four weeks. And I started in at the foreign office. One of the first jobs they got us to do was starting at seven o'clock in the morning. We'd go out with a minibus and we'd go around either Milton Keynes or Northampton, picking up staff and then bringing them back into the to the park and then in the afternoon taking them back again and then we'll spend the rest of the day going around doing little jobs either cleaning some of the vehicles down or delivering out some of the post the other main role in there was diplomatic post and this came in every day and what happens is if you're on the diplomatic run you start six o'clock in the morning you go down with one of their drivers in a van and the first stop would be Vauxhall Cross, which is MI6. And you deliver some bags in there. And then you go around to the foreign office in King Charles Street and deliver the post in there, along with the red box for the minister. And then you go and have your breakfast. And then you wait until about 10 o'clock for the returning post to come back up to the park. They had their own drivers but they mainly did all the continental work. They used to take out all the diplomatic mail to the embassies and consulates around Europe. 
and they go as far afield as Russia and down to Turkey and just about everywhere in between. This for us was a really good little number. They guaranteed us 66 hours a week, which is about the most you can do. And you didn't have to do a huge amount of work for it. And we were on about £10 an hour at this time, so it was on pretty good money. And I got one opportunity. They were doing a big refurb in the consulate in Zagreb. And they sent down three trucks, but they didn't have enough drivers. So I went with one of their drivers, because it's all double man stuff, on diplomatic plates. So I went with one of their drivers, and we drove down in convoy all the way down through Germany, through Austria, into Croatia, and round to Zagreb. They put us up in a hotel for three nights in Zagreb while we tipped out, waiting to pick up all the, the empties and the rubbish that they were sending back. And then we drove back. The whole trip took six days. And in that six days, I earned £1,125 plus another £500 expenses. It was a proper, proper result week. Never earned so much money in one week in my, in my life. Like all good things, never lasts. So they ended up taking on a few drivers in there and I was ousted. One of the other jobs that I got on the agency was working for Aston Martin. They had two trucks, two Ford wagon and drags. And the job was you go out and pick up customers' cars and bring them back into the factory for a work service and then take them back out again. And I did this job for about three months. The first week on the job was spent driving the different variants of Aston Martin. So it was right from the DB4 all the way up to the latest Vanquishes, the Aston Martin Lagonda, the big wedge-shaped thing. They all have a different way of starting, all different techniques to get them going. And then the following week, I was on the job, and I was going out driving Aston Martins. One of the other companies that they put me into that I spent quite a lot of time in was a company called Paratus, and it was delivering out flour products to bakeries. It was hard graft, but they guaranteed a lot of hours and at least two nights out a week. It wasn't long after I got my discharge letter from the SAS that Manning and Records wrote to me and said that I still had a reserve liability and that I needed to turn up once a year at a reception centre with all my reserve kit to be checked off and have my details checked to make sure that all the information they got was correct. So this entailed going to a reception centre and for me it was St George's Barracks in Bicester. And they'd turn up there in the morning, they'd check all your kit off, they'd sit you down into a lecture room, give you a bit of a lecture, show you one of the latest training films and then you go and sign on the dotted line, draw £100 plus the expenses to get there and back and that was it, job done. Anyway, I'd been doing this for about four years Manning Records wrote me another letter saying, would I like to sign on for another four years of this reserve service? And I thought, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a piece of cake. Turn up once a year, show you a bit of kit, confirm your details, and draw £100, job done. £100 for doing nothing, really. Anyway, so after I'd signed on, what they did, they sent me a letter calling me up, 
saying that I had to go off on this star training, which entailed mobilising, basically. I'm guessing this star training mobilisation malarkey came about because of the first Gulf War in 1992. So they had to have a way of being able to call people up at short notice. So I turned up on this, this day at the depot of Queen's Division, thinking it would be a right little jolly, have a few beers in the evening and all the rest of it. None of that. No, they put us through a full mobilisation. They took all our civvies off us, stuck it in a box, stuck it on a shelf, upscaled all our military kit, stuck us on the back of Bedford's and drove us all the way up to Fetford to one of the battle camps up there. And we were up there for two weeks doing loads of tests. And what they did, they, they put us through a new training package on the new rifle, the SA-80. They also gave us a new respirators. And because I had a beard on at the time, they said, oh, you might have trouble there. You might need to take your beard off when you, when you go in the gas chamber. I said, I'll risk it. So I risked it, and I didn't have any ill effects from the, the gas. It didn't seem to get in, other than sort of the normal sort of taking it off anyway, and giving you a number rank name before you was let out of the gas chamber. And that was it. So I had two weeks there. They gave us on full pay, obviously. And that was it. I'd got a new batch of kit, and I'd been trained up on the SA-80, and I'd been trained up on the new gas mask techniques. That takes us up to around about 1995. I'd completed the star training and I still had a few years left on my regular reserve service. So I'm going to end this episode here because after this I then changed roles from being a driver to working in offices. And it wasn't long after that the opportunity came to rejoin the TA. So until the next episode, thank you for listening. <laughs>